Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Abortion Resistance Power and Courage podcast. My name is Thomas, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the heroic Dr. Dermot Kearney. Um, so for those of you tuning in who don't know Dr. Kearney, he, he stood apart from others in the medical practice when he began providing women who wanted it with the abortion pill reversal treatment and subsequently saved many lives. Um, he received scrutiny and defamation from his peers, but fortunately justice was seen to and all charges against him were dropped. Um, however, medical experts have recently demanded that he be further investigated. Uh, and we'll talk about that shortly, obviously. But um, yeah, Dermot, uh, firstly, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I think it's been long overdue as well. Um, now, I don't know if you're familiar with our podcast, but we usually start out by asking just a fun question, just to get to let the audience get to know you a little bit better. Um, so my question will be, um, obviously, I'm a big music head. What's your favourite genre of music? Yeah, well, uh, I like a lot of different genres, but my favourite artist above all else is certainly Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, I'm a yeah. huge Dylan fan, but I like uh, lots of other artists. Uh, so Springsteen, Paul Simon, a lot of the great singer-songwriters. Um, yeah. Up until recently, I was I used to keep a keen interest on sort of sort of pop pop culture and so on, but oh, okay. recent years I've, I've fallen away from that. Uh, country music actually I've come to like a little more and more as the years go by as well. Maybe I'm getting older, but uh, certainly D Dylan is is number one. He's he's way above everybody else, and we're all mere mortals sort of looking up. Yeah, at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I do like a bit of um, like singer songwriter style myself, and I, I, my my father actually is a huge Bob D Bob Dylan fan. Um, he's blessed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, that's that's good to know. Um, and with regards to country music, then is that something you've you've always listened to, or is that kind of similar to the pop stuff you just picked up recently? Or yeah, it's um, well, well, it's always been because I, I I'm from Ireland, as you probably have guessed at this stage. Yeah, uh, Ireland has always had a strong tradition of country music, much more than the UK, I think. Yeah. And we we were in some ways we we were blessed actually. We got um, we we got the best of both worlds. We got all all the the sounds coming from the UK, but we also had a we kept a keen interest on the US. So we, we were attuned to a lot of great artists from the US that would never be heard of over in, in this part of the world, in the UK. It's surprising we're, even, we're only a couple of hundred miles apart. Uh, but Ireland yeah. has, a, I think, a rich tradition of following um, US music, probably more than the UK, but also the UK as well. So we got the best of both worlds. And then we yeah. had our own little uh, imitations as well. And we had some, we've had some good artists out along the years. So Irish music is pretty well established as oh, well in, in its own right. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. Um, very good. I suppose um, just with that out of the way then, um, can we, I mean, can we just get a general introduction as to sort of who you are then? Obviously, you you work predominantly in the in the medical field with the NHS. Um, yeah. I guess I just wanted to get a general feel for, you know, how did you first get into the medical space when did you first start out as a doctor um yeah just a general overview as to as to kind of how you got started and and what your role is has involved would be would be great yeah well i um i qualified from i qualified in 1989 as, as a doctor um i went into when i left school i had no i had no intention of being a doctor in fact i remember clearly saying that there's one thing that i certainly was never going to be and that was a doctor because i just couldn't stand the sight of blood or other traumatic situations, but I managed to get over that. Um, 
I, I started out studying French and history and Irish in, in UCD in Dublin. And during my first year there, I came across in the history section a book about a uh, some of you, some of your listeners or your people who, who attend this this meeting might know a lady called Sheila Cassidy. She was an English doctor who left Britain in the 70s to go to Chile in South America. Now, she had, she had the intention of having a lucrative, exclusive type lifestyle, but she soon got up in, in helping the poor. And then in doing so, there was at that time, there was lots of political turmoil. There was a coup in, in Chile and she was arrested um, and put in prison and tortured uh, for helping a left-wing guerrilla, I suppose. Um, she, she didn't ask any questions. She was asked one night, would she treat somebody with gunshot wounds and not ask any questions about them? And she said, of course, I'm a doctor. I'll do what I can. And then she was taken in and questioned. Then she wrote her a book on her her story, and she became very much converted to serving the poor. And I, wow. I thought this was this is this is wonderful. This is this is the life I want to live. I want to go to South America and, and help the poor. So wow. I decided I, I switched to medicine at that stage with the with the intention of going to Latin America. That's at that stage it was sort of El Salvador, Guatemala, with a with a place that seemed to be where the greatest need was. And then after qualified, um, I still had that intention. I even started to learn Spanish. Oh, uh, really? But, yeah, I did. But um, a patient, an elderly patient, I, I was doing, I was working as a junior doctor in in, card, in the cardiothoracic, the, the heart surgery. And the lady who had a bypass operation, I was telling her my plans. And she said, I don't, with her Dublin accent, don't go to these foreign places. We need good doctors like, like you, young, good doctors like you in this country too. And it made me think. And then I had friends who had been to work in sort of on doing missionary work in third world countries. And they came back quite disillusioned because they felt the people there didn't really need doctors coming from the West and they needed the supplies. They needed the medicines, the, the bandages, the clean syringes, uh, yeah. the drugs. But they didn't need, they had their own doctors if, if they only had the, the facilities to, to carry out what they wanted to do. And that made me think that maybe that woman was right. Maybe I should stick to helping people in in, in Ireland, um, yeah. And so that's just, so I, I never got to, to Latin America. I ended up uh, staying in, in doing most of my training in Ireland. Then for so I qualified in '89, went into cardiology a few years later. I did sort of general training first, then cardio, heart medicine, uh, cardiology. Okay. Uh, still keeping up, still keeping up general medicine. And most Irish doctors are expected to spend some time uh, with international experience. So I went to Holland for two years to do some right. additional cardiology, working and doing stenting and uh, cardiac procedures with the intention of going back to Ireland in the early 2000s. But there was, there was very few jobs available for cardiologists in Ireland at that oh, time. Really? So um, I, I ended up coming to the UK. I saw a job advertised that, that sounded OK, and I came to look at the, the place in the northeast of England. And, okay. uh, I've been here for 19 years now, almost Fantastic. 20 years. So where where in the northeast are you at the minute then? I'm in in Gateshead. Gateshead, right? Okay. Beside Newcastle, so the River Tyne separates Newcastle from Gateshead. We're on the south side. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, my whole uh, half of my family are from Durham, which is kind of like oh yeah, just a few miles that. down the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I know the area relatively well. Not an expert, but I do I do know the area. Um, and then so. Have you been there ever since? When was it you you came over? So to 2003, July 2003, I, I started my current position and I've been there ever since. Okay, good stuff. And so so beforehand, when how long had you been working in Ireland then before you came over to the North? Well, I qualified in 89. So I was working in Ireland 89 until 
2001. Then I spent yeah. uh, 2001, 2003 in Holland, yeah, um, Amsterdam and Leiden. Yeah, so then, how was how was that then? What was it like working in in Holland? It was lovely. Yeah, uh, everybody should live in Holland for two years. Oh yeah, it was, it was, it was really yeah. Well, I, we were very lucky again. We were in a a lovely town called Leiden. It's a university town. Um, it's you know, half an hour from Amsterdam on the train. Um, it it has all the the beautiful features of Amsterdam without the the sort of big city problems that you might get. So it was a lovely place to live. Yeah. Lovely canals. A little bit of snow and ice in the in the winter and lovely summers, uh, so it was really really nice. And the the way of life was very much like Ireland in the seventies, which surprised me because you know, there was a slow pace of life, much slower than you than you'd expect. Yeah, yeah, because we all think of, of Holland as being a very developed and liberal sort of country, and certainly the people that were living in the area we were in um, had very strong family values. Um, right. Not that you would expect uh, for, uh, when we think of Holland and Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Amsterdam, yeah. Was but Leiden has very strong family traditional values. Uh, we didn't have a car, so we walked or cycled or, or used public tra- transport to get wherever we went. Uh, you could leave your door open and know that nobody was ever going to break in. Really? So it was really nice. We walked down. We didn't never went to supermarkets or anything. We went to just the local shops down the road. Um, yeah. And it was, it was a nice, easy going sort of pace of life. Yeah, oh, that's that's so interesting. I know it's it's kind of, I mean, I'm now based down south in in London. Obviously, coming from Dundee, and I I definitely know what it's like to go from, um, like a slower pace of life to a quicker p- pace of life. Because down here, it's like hundred miles an hour, and it just makes me sort of realize like how nice it is to just appreciate a slower, calmer pace of life, especially like kind of up north and I suppose that's that's kind of what it sounds like you had over in Holland then yeah and I suppose then with like comparing that then to the northeast is it kind of because obviously the northeast is a slower pace of life than what it's like down in London is that similar to to some extent it's the northeast is not too unlike Ireland actually um okay there is a strong like Irish and Scottish um Diaspora up here in the, in the, the northeast, like a lot of people have. Oh, when you speak towns, oh, I've, my uncle was Irish and my grandfather was Irish, and there was lots of uh, Irish connections and Scottish connections. Yeah, so yeah. there is that. Um, is, yeah, so it, and it is a slower pace of life than than in some of the bigger cities, I suppose. Yeah, uh, it's generally friendly area to work in. It has lots of I suppose, social problems, like like most urban areas in the in the UK has at this stage. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 not too bad. It's I recommend it. Cool. Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. Cool. So, um, so you were doing cardiology over in Holland then for a couple of years. Yeah. Then you came back to the northeast and did cardiology there for, and you've been there ever since. Yeah, I'm doing um, cardiology, but I also do. Uh, I, well, I have what you call dual training. A lot of Irish and uh, British doctors will they'll have their speciality, but they'll also have general medicine. So the skills are transferable. And that, that yeah. we'll probably touch on that later. That that became quite important when it came to my case doing the, the abortion reversal. That I'm not just focused on one area of medicine. I like I, yeah. a lot of the patients I see, and uh, several patients today who had, didn't have cardiac problems, they had other general medical problems that you have right. to be able to deal with. So I have a I suppose a broad range of experience, which I obtained through training days in Ireland, and I've maintained ever since then. Yeah. So I'm stri- strictly speaking, I'm a consultant cardiologist and general physician general physician i do on call for emergencies or medical anything could come in the door and got you i'll have to be able to deal with 
Yeah, absolutely. At least if, if I'm not able to do it, I, need, I then at least know who to turn to to, to ask for advice if, if it's not right. something yeah. that I'm familiar with. Right, got you. So I guess to tie in with that then, what? how did you get into the abortion reversal pill then? Like, how, how did that even come about? Had you, had it been something that you'd actively looked out to kind of get involved in or was nope. it just, no, it was, it was no. just kind of. In, in 2008, um, so skipping forward a few years, I, I joined the Catholic Medical Association and that, that was triggered by an event in, in my own hospital. I won't go into too much detail on it because of the people involved, but of course. A, young, a young Catholic girl working in the hospital, I didn't know at the time, uh, was being put under pressure to prescribe the medications used in abortion and she said she couldn't do that and then she was she got into trouble with uh, some of the senior people in her department now they, she was well within her rights they apologized to her later on but when I heard her story that she was being put under pressure to do something against her conscience um, it made me realize that there must be some organization for people like her and like myself that, right. that wouldn't want to be put in that situation so when I heard about it when I spoke to her myself and heard the full story on that day I went to my office, put on the computer, put in Catholic doctors, medicals, looking for, was there any organization? I came across the Catholic Medical Association, which I immediately joined. Yeah. Um, because it, it's basically there to help Catholics working in healthcare to help them to provide an excellent service and doing what they're doing, whether they be doctors, nurses, pharmacists, physios, or whatever, but also to remain faithful to their, to their conscience and to the teachings of, of the church. Yeah. without having to compromise and so that's what that's what we do we support catholics in that area and we've had a number of people over the years and continue to do so so i became a member of that, that organization and then i was elected to our council we've a sort of the senior people in who sort of make directions for where the organ the association goes and things that we want to get involved in and at one of our council meetings in 2014 uh, it was attended by a wonderful man called jack scarisbury who's who's I think he's still alive, but I know his wife died uh, pretty recently. He was the founder of Life, one of the the early pro-life organizations in the United Kingdom. Wonderful man. But he had heard, mainly through women who were coming to his organization looking for help, he had heard that um, women who had taken the first abortion pill, and by by this stage, more, more and more abortions were being carried out by drugs rather than surgery. And in right. this country now, in the, in the UK alone, 85 to 90 percent are are now performed in the early stages by by giving drugs. About right. 10 to 15 percent still have some form of surgical involvement. The United States is only recently that they've uh, that they've reached over 50 percent. So in the, the US, it was well below 50 percent for many years. Right. The UK started providing abortion in that way using drugs in 1990. The US only got approval in 2000. It was initially in France, actually, a year or two before the UK the drugs were developed in France with the initial drug. Yeah. So women were, were having these drugs prescribed to them. Um, that's it, they had to have in-person clinic visits. And they take the first drug called mifepristone. And then one or two days they had to, sec- to take the second drug called misoprostol. But mifepristone is, um, it inhibits the, the action of an essential hormone, progesterone. Progesterone is produced uh, and it's essential to maintain pregnancy. Right. And right. the blocks the action of progesterone. And a clever doctor in the US in around 2007, in fact, two different doctors in, in both sides of the country, one in North Carolina, one in California, 
to knew nothing about what the other was doing, but they were approached by uh, women who said, I've taken the first abortion pill and I regret what I've done. Is there anything you can do to save my baby? And they, they thought, because they, they, these were experts in in fertility management, fertility awareness, right. they had worked progesterone, and they knew how the abortion pills work. They knew the mifepristone, the drug that had been taken, but that is, uh, it prevents the action of progesterone. So putting two and two together and just thinking about it logically, they thought, well, maybe if we can give progesterone, which is could be the antidote to mifepristone, because just as mifepristone blocks progesterone, if you give enough progesterone, you might block the, the action of mifepristone. Right, and right. They're competing for the same receptors. That's how they have their effect with these receptors on, on cells. So just they, they thought about it logically and thought, well, maybe if we give progesterone promptly or at least quickly to these women who food. And in both cases, one in 2007, I think one in 2006, maybe, or 2000, 2008, it was a year apart from both of them. They gave progesterone and the baby survived in both cases. And they, that right. might have been coincidence. They might have survived anyway, because we know that there are a small number of, of uh, situations where the, the baby will still survive, even when the mother has taken the first abortion pill, as long as she yeah. doesn't take the second abortion pill. Right. So then, then they start to do a little bit more work on that area. And eventually, 2012, they set up an actual program. They got to hear about each other and others got involved. In 2012, an established program of abortion pill reversal was, was, was set up in the US, uh, which would cater for women throughout the country. Anyone who had a problem could contact this, this helpline, this support group that would try to get them progesterone treatment, but they already had several more cases then between 2007 and 2012. So they set up a formal program at that, at that point. Then speed on to 2014, Jack Scarisbrick um, came to our meeting and he said he had heard reports come from the US that it might be possible in some situations to undo or block the effect of the first abortion pill if progesterone could be given in time. And he explained to us how, because we, we knew nothing about this. We we knew that we were aware that abortions were being carried out by these drugs. We didn't think anything could be done about it. Um, I, I certainly knew nothing about it. I knew I was a little bit aware that bifurpristone had some effect on progesterone. And then yeah. the second drug was taken a day or two later to complete the abortion. But I had no idea that it could be possibly reversed or, or prevented. So Jack Skerisbrek uh, told us about the, these case reports that he had heard. But some women had come to him and he had looked into it. So we decided, well, okay, we, we look into this. We were all skeptical. I was very skeptical. We wondered, first of all, was there going to be a need? You know, how many women are actually going to change their mind? Because we'd always been led to believe women don't change their mind. If a woman yeah. said abortion, that's it. She's made her decision. So women are not. So that was the first thing that we had to convince ourselves of that actually mm. some women do change their mind. Yeah. And it became pretty clear once we looked a little bit into it that yes, actually there are women who know who would change their mind if they could, um, or who would look for this treatment if, if, if it was available to them. So yeah. we thought that, yeah, there, there is going to be a need. Then the second thing was, well, is it, does it work? You know, Because it's all very well and good having this nice idea. It's a nice theory. It could work. But does it actually work in practice? And then the, as the years have gone by, there's um, more and more stronger evidence that, that actually it does work. Not always, and I'll, I'll come back to that at the moment. But that at least it was worth trying, that even if you saved one life, two lives or three lives it was worth trying so it doesn't always work but it does work more often than not right the most important question of all however was is it safe and that was our biggest uh, stumbling block you know is, is this safe we knew that progesterone was safe because progesterone has been around for decades it's used in pregnancy it's used in IVF it's used in women who are 
at risk of having miscarriages, uh, if it's particularly if they've had one or okay. more previous miscarriages. It doesn't always okay. work, mind you, but it is better than nothing. And we know it's safe. It doesn't do the mother any harm. It doesn't do the child any harm if the, chi- if the child survives. Yeah. But the, the bigger question was the mifepristone, so the first abortion pill, if the mother has taken that and the child has been exposed to it, and if the child then happens to survive, whether uh, you know, with or without treatment, with or without progesterone, is that child going to be okay? Is there going to be some horrendous congenital problems as a result of the, um, the, the attempted abortion earlier on using mifepristone? Because right. we were thinking in terms of drugs like thalidomide, you know, which was, was brought out in good faith in the early 60s to help women with sickness and nausea in pregnancy, but uh, it turned see. out to cause them problems. And we know that some drugs are are not safe for the baby in pregnancy. So that was the worry. You know, if if we do somehow manage to save the babies with progesterone or even not give them progesterone, the fact that they've, they've been exposed to mifepristone, does that harm them? And again, after a little bit of research, the answer became pretty clear that it doesn't, that uh, there isn't any increased risk of congenital problems, which is very useful and very important to know. Even the abortion people will they recognize that, even if they don't like what we're doing, they all agree that, well, mifepristone by, per se doesn't do any harm. Progesterone per se doesn't do any harm. They just don't like the combination of, of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so we know it's safe. Um, and now there's been more than... I don't know if you saw the news just released in the last couple of weeks. Mm. But more than two, more than four thousand babies have been born in the last ten years. So since that program was established in 2012, starting off with slow numbers or small numbers, small numbers of um, doctors willing to help. Yeah. Now, yeah. More, more, well over four thousand babies have been born uh, wow. without any increased risk to them. Now, not all. It's not always successful. And the way, mm. the way, the most important thing that I explained to to mothers and to anyone interested in the situation is that if, if the mother takes both abortion pills, so she takes the mifepristone, the one that blocks the progesterone, and then she follows up one or two days later to take misoprostol, that's a prostaglandin that basically completes the abortion, causes the uterus to contract and the cervix to dilate and expels right. the, the baby and the other products of conception when it yes. works as it's meant to. So if she takes both of those drugs as directed, there's a 98 to 99% chance that her baby will die. Uh, the, the abortion isn't always complete. So even though she might take both pills and the, and the, abortion, the abortion is complete, uh, about 7% or so, 6 or 7% will still be retained products of conception that, so, and that, that might need a surgical evacuation. That's also important right. because that is a, a complication of these, these drugs. But there's a 98 to 99% certainty that her child will die. So there's a less than 2% chance the baby will survive if she takes both pills. If she takes the first pill, the mifepristone, as this is where we come in, and decides she changes her mind, as hundreds of women in this country do, and probably more would if they knew, if they, knew they could. Um, so if she changes her mind after mifepristone and, and doesn't do anything, doesn't know about progesterone, doesn't take the second pill, and she takes her chances and see what's going to happen, there's about a 20% chance that her baby might still survive, which is not right. bad. It's better than 2% or less than 2%. Right. Um, right. It depends on the state. It depends on a number of factors. An important one is the stage of gestation. So if she's 12 weeks, 11 weeks, 10 weeks, there's a higher chance of survival than if she's six or seven weeks. Right. Okay. But even having said that, babies have survived even when being exposed to mifepristone at you know those very early stages. But the the, the overall chances are higher the later in gestation uh, that they that the mifepristone is taken as long as she doesn't take the second pill. So overall, about a 20% chance that the, the baby might survive. 
we found, um, first of all, the Americans, they, when they looked into it, when they studied it in more detail and they got together numbers over the over several years. And in 2018, they published a paper where for more, more than 700 women who had sought the service, and not all of them went ahead with the treatment. I think it was some like 550 that actually went ahead with the treatment. But they found that in the women who received oral progesterone, the tablet progesterone, it was a 68% survival rate, 68% birth rate. Not only survival, but birth rate, which is very good. So certainly much better than less than 20%, much better than 2%. Mm. So that's shown that progesterone is certainly working and safely as well. If they got intramuscular injection, the very first cases actually were, were given by injection, intramuscular injection, it was a 64%. And the, the numbers were much smaller in that group, so it's difficult to know is it, is it like for like, but it was a greater than 60% chance of the American statistics that the baby would survive. Surprisingly, if it was given by vaginal pestries, because that's the other way, and that's the common way in this country, um, pestries into the vagina and to retain them, uh, the survival rate was just about 50%. So not as good as with the oral tablets or with the intramuscular injections, but far better than, than doing nothing. Doing just, nothing, yeah. you know, What they call expected management. That's wait and see what might happen. Just don't do anything else. Because uh, that's currently what the groups like the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetricians, that's what they recommend. If a woman changes her mind, don't take progesterone, just wait and see what happens. But there's only about a 20% chance that that yeah. might, might result in a live birth. And in fact, it might be less than that because the only studies that they've done looking at that have only gone to 15 days. They've, they've looked at the survival rate of 15 days, which is a very short time. Because in, in my own experience, some babies have been lost, even though the 15 days, everything seemed to be fine. But two weeks, three weeks later, the miscarriage happens. Yeah. So to, be, to, to compare sort of like for like, it should be, Looking at the, what's the, the final birth rate, uh, healthy, happy babies born at you know, 38 weeks, 40 weeks, full term. And in our experience in the UK, we, we, we haven't been able to emulate the American experience. The American experience is over 60%, probably on average about 65% success rate. Ours is 50% or just over 50%, between 50 and 55%. But again, that's been very hard in ourselves because um, as I said, we, we, we're, we only consider success if, if you get a live birth at the end of it. A number of the women who came to me and, and started treatment and continued treatment um, were doing fine, had scans oh, at one week, and then maybe at 12 weeks had their follow-up scan. Everything was looking fine. And then they stopped contacting me, and I, I don't know what happened. So there was 11 of, of, the, of the 102 women that I've looked after that I've been asked to, to provide this treatment. 11 of them. Uh, I don't know what happened because uh, they uh, they're all doing fine and then they stopped. And I have to suspect that they, because a lot of these women are under pressure mm. to abort. And some of them may have, again, wanting to keep their babies, but are under pressure from partners or husbands or parents or peers or work situations or something, may have decided to, despite the initial success, might have gone ahead with the abortion. So, so that's why I can't say for certain what exactly the success rate is because some of the women, I think, Certainly, if you went to 15 days, our success rate is, is at least 60%, 60-65%. But if, you, if you're looking at the actual birth rate at the end, it's just over 50%. Got yeah. Okay, so uh, we would like it to be better. The reason the, I, I suspect the main reason for the difference, because uh, we haven't got as good success rate as the, as the U.S., is the time involved. So in the U.S., the, the time, the duration that it takes for a woman to take the first abortion pill, change your mind, and then actually get treatment with progesterone is about six hours. 
So it's very right. quick. Get it within, well within 24 hours. In our situation, the average time, the, the mean, the average time is 25 hours from the, the 140 or 50 that, that we've treated myself and another doctor, Eileen Riley. Um, 25 hours is the average time. So the, there is that delay and that can be crucial in, in some situations. I mentioned earlier that mm-hmm. one factor that might determine the likelihood of success is the, the stage of gestation. But another factor is that the time during, how long does it take to get the treatment? Again, from the American studies, they do say that even it's still useful up to 72 hours, as long as the mother hasn't had very severe bleeding and severe cramps in, in that space of time. Right, okay. And some do. Some uh, I, I explain to all of the, the mothers that, are, that contact me, if you've taken mifepristone and if you're, if you're in the first trimester, if you're under 12 weeks, you're going to bleed. There will be some bleeding. doesn't mean your baby won't survive. But there will, and even if we give you progesterone, there will still be some bleeding. The only women, in my experience, that haven't bled are those who've been well over the 12 weeks when, when they took the first pill. Um, the latest that I treated was a young woman, 17 weeks, and her baby did fine. She had no bleeding. Another one at between 14 and 15 weeks didn't have any bleeding either. But most of them are under 10 weeks, and they will all bleed. Sometimes it's very minor bleeding. Sometimes it's very heavy bleeding, and some yeah. of the women have needed blood transfusions. Some okay. of them um, some of them have already miscarried by the time they phone us. So they, they phone us, you know, 24, contact us 24 or five hours later. And they're already bleeding very heavily at that stage. And mm. there's nothing that we do have to tell them. We're very sorry that we it's too late. We can't do So some women are very susceptible to mifepristone right. at a very early stage. Some takes a little bit longer before it has its full effect. That's probably why progesterone works in some and not in others. It's and not in others. So many variable factors. It's not only the age of gestation. It's not only uh, the, the time delay. There's obstetric factors. So if a woman has had several previous miscarriages, then maybe the... If she's taken mifepristone, what we're going to do or offer may not be as successful as a woman who's never been pregnant before. Yeah. Um, might depend on the weight, the, the height, the weight, the, the BMI, the body mass index. There's lots of factors that probably influence uh, what we're trying to do. And we don't know. But there is a need for further research into that area to see, you know, when is it, when is progesterone worth giving? Uh, the moment we give it to everyone who requests it, as long as if they haven't taken the second abortion pill, and if they're within 72 hours, it's worthwhile um, trying, as long as they're having a very heavy bleeding and, and so on. Yeah, interesting. So so when was, um, so obviously you joined that group who were first set up in America. Um, did you say it was you and a colleague of yours? Yeah, as I said, so Jack Scarisbrick asked us to look into this. So 2014, uh, we looked into it and there, was very, there wasn't okay. much information, but year by year, more and more became available. Things yeah. that actually that the, 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 the turning point for me, if you like, was um, an article written in 2017 in the, the New York Times, which is not a, it's not really a, a well-known pro-life journal or newspaper. It's very very much pro-abortion. But there was a quite a well-balanced article because I knew it, I knew from the research I was doing, looking at that there was there was two sides to the argument. There was people very much advocating this abortion reversal treatment, which we found very interesting and, yeah. and hopeful. Yeah. But then there was other people who were totally against it and said, no, this, this shouldn't be allowed. And it was hard to, to reason why, because these were what they, these were pro-choice people or people. Who yeah, see, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I so was... there were the, the biggest, the most outspoken person was a guy called uh, Daniel Grossman. He's a, an abortionist in California. And he was very, uh, very 
vehemently against abortion pill reversal right from the beginning. And another guy, another abortionist in California called Mitchell Crinan. And there's there's one very telling interview. It's a it's a Huffington Post interview that's on YouTube, the internet. I saw Grossman was interviewed around probably around 2017, 2018, and he was asked, you know, why what, was he opposed to this? Was it was it the treatment itself that he was concerned? He said, no, no, it's not the treatment. It's the rhetoric. He said, the rhetoric, this rhetoric that women change their mind. We know that women don't change their minds. That was his thing. But then he just he would call himself pro-choice. And, you know, if a woman is informed, at least, of, of what's available, the risks involved, which are very minimal, if any, um, the risks of not taking the second drug, maybe they might lead to more bleeding than, than if she completed the abortion. And that's not to be, that's not established yet, but that is a theoretical possibility because uh, taking Mr. Prostol causes uterine contraction. That might, in theory, reduce the amount of bleeding, but on the other hand, it's going to cause bleeding as well. Yeah. Whereas progesterone doesn't cause any bleeding. But they were very much against it, and I, it, it was very difficult to figure out. The only answer I can come up with, based on what he had said, is that they don't want to admit that women change their mind. And we know that women do, like that, as I said, 4,000 babies in the U.S. alone. And that's 4,000, let's say, that were successful, and another two or 3,000 that were probably unsuccessful. So that's mm. at least 6,500 women in the U.S. who've changed their mind and, and gone ahead with treatment. In mm. the U.K., we've had at least 150 uh, who, who've come to us in the in the last two years, right? Uh, so, so, and they they're the ones who who became aware of it. Uh, there may well be thousands of others who would have done if they'd known about it. Yeah, because yeah. very few people in this country know about abortion reversal because it's not promoted by the, the people who perform the abortions. It's not promoted by the NHS or the GMC or anyone. But it's by word of mouth and um find out from other people that, that this might be a possibility for them. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, I was going to say, yeah, this article in the New York Times, there was there was a balanced view where they were speaking to people on both sides of the argument, and it was publishing them as, you know, with, with their quotations as, as it's, and I found it quite a good article. But the thing that struck me most was they, they quoted a, a doctor from Yale, Yale Medical School, and he was a, he's a professor of placental and reproductive research. That's a pretty... Um, specialist area. You won't get too many people in the UK professor of placental yeah. research. I don't think uh, his name was Harvey Kleiman, and uh, he, caught, he he described himself as being pro-choice or, or even pro-abortion, but pro-choice. He saw nothing wrong if a woman decides that's her option, then he wasn't going to interfere in any way. Yeah, uh, to have an abortion. But he said, speaking on abortion reversal, this makes absolute biological sense. He said it's it's, it's obvious, and he, furthermore, he said if I had a daughter. And she was pregnant and she accidentally took mifepristone and wanted to save her, her pregnancy. I would give her progesterone, no doubt about it. I would give her progesterone yeah. and I bet yeah. it would work. I would give her a high dose for several days and I bet it would work. It would counteract the effect of the mifepristone. So when yeah. I saw someone yeah. like that making that sort of statement, I thought there must be something to this. Yeah. Then in 2018 uh, came the key factor, Claire McCulloch, who's the founder of a Good Council Pro Life Organization. In London. Yeah came to a, a Catholic Medical Association um, annual conference. And basically, she gave, she was talking on something else, but she pleaded with us, could we seriously look into the abortion pill reversal? Because she, again, had heard about it from the US. We were still looking into it, finding our way around it. Right. Uh, but more and more women were coming to them. Girls were actually becoming aware of this now, uh, more, more than we were, and were coming to her, and there was nothing they could do. She was taking them to private 
um, doctors in Harley Street hoping that some of them might help out. And some of them did, or at least, but they charged exorbitant fees. And it was difficult for the organisations like Good Council to, to provide that service uh, on, a, on a sustainable basis. Yeah. So she pleaded yeah. with us. Um, presumably, she thought that we would be pro-life in a Catholic medical organisation. And if anyone was going to look into this, that maybe we, we would, just as Jack Scarisbrick had, had asked us before. So nobody else was looking into it. So we decided, I, I was elected president at, at that same weekend and of the organisation. We, we do three-year terms. I did my, just finished my three-year term recently. So I, I promised Claire that I would, I would definitely look into this. So I went to the US in November that year to a, to a Catholic medical conference because one of the items on was being discussed was abortion pill reversal. I went and I met the, the main pioneer, the, the guy who formed the second uh, procedure in California when the baby was saved, a guy called uh, Dr. George Delgado. I, met, I went to his talks, um, read everything he had written on the subject. At that stage, he was just about to publish that, that study with the, the 500 and plus women and the, the 64%, 68% success rate. Right. I spoke to him about that, got all the details from him. Uh, spoke to other people who were involved with it as well. And, and I realized that we, we need to do something about this in the UK. We need to try and set it up. So I took it back to our council, the Catholic Medical Association, and we decided we'd go about it in, in the right way. This had to be a, a proper, um, proper, properly organized service that we couldn't just set up ourselves. So we wrote to the Royal College of Obstetricians. We wrote to the um, Royal College of General Practitioners that GPs might be able to provide this service. Yeah. We wrote to NHS England, uh, explaining to them you know, what we had discovered, the research we had been involved in, the results of the trials. Uh, we, we spoke also the, the negative aspect. We said that some people are against this for these reasons that they don't think it's necessary, but our findings suggest that's not the case. And also that, that they tried to think that it doesn't work. But at that stage, more and more babies were being born week after week. So we were able to see that, yeah, there is it does work it's a higher success rate than doing nothing and the responses we got back from two colleges and from NHS England were very disappointing we, we thought that they maybe naively we thought that they would look on this as being a, a good thing for women because you know they're pro-choice people it's a woman's choice to try and save her baby after she's changed her mind we thought they we would get support but the um the, the, we got a joint letter from the Royal College of Obstetricians and GPs and it was it's almost laughable, but it's uh, certainly inconsistent, and you could call it hypocritical if you like. But mm. they said, "Oh, we do not support any treatment that is not licensed in this country." And it's true that progesterone is not licensed for abortion reversal. It's licensed for other things. It's licensed for uh, other uses. Uh, it's not licensed for IVF, by the way. Uh, it's used really. Yeah, and it's lucrative. Lucrative private. Uh, shocking, isn't it? Yeah, but we pointed we pointed out to them at the time. And this was true, that misoprostol, the second drug used in abortion, is not licensed for abortion. And yet they were heavily recommending it as mifepristone is licensed for abortion. Misoprostol at that time, I think in the last 12 months, there may well have been a license granted to misoprostol. But for more than right. 21 years, misoprostol was being used off license. Doesn't mean it's illegal, it's still legal. And you're allowed to use drugs off license as long as you have a very good um, reason for doing so, as long as you understand uh, the pharmacology and the physiology involved you know that it's safe you know what you're doing so you are allowed to use drugs off license but to, to to sort of say that they wouldn't um support the use of progesterone because it was off license or wasn't licensed was 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 
inconsistent. Yeah. Very kind. Um, and I pointed that out to them. I also pointed out, which is even probably even more important, that they also recommend a drug called methotrexate. Methotrexate is commonly used for chronic inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. That's the typical one. Some chronic inflammatory bowel disease. But the Royal College of Obstetricians are very keen for it to be used for the medical treatment of ectopic pregnancies, because it does okay. it, cause, it prevents cells dividing. In fact, it's it used to be used for uh, inducing abortions before mifepristone and misoprostol were used. And it still is used in, in that way, but it's not supposed to be used. Or it's not commonly used now for, for abortion. But it, it is used for, for medical management of ectopic pregnancies. And the RCOG on their website strongly recommend it. And that is not licensed and still is not licensed for, for that indication. So I, I pointed out these two glaring errors in their in their judgment and in their statement was that, oh, we can't support unlicensed medications or off-licensed medications. And we got no reply. So I wrote back to them as, you know, saying that we were disappointed, but you know, did not realize this. And then they didn't reply. And then we wrote a third time and we got no reply. In the third letter, we said, and I'm sure we are going to go ahead and try to establish this service. I'm sure you will have no objections for us in doing so. Nice. Uh, we got a similar letter from the um, NHS England. They didn't say anything about off-license. They just said they weren't convinced of the, that this drug was effective and that they would recommend, or the NHS England recommends, an expectant management course. So if, if a woman changes her mind, just don't take the second pill and wait and see what happens. That, that becomes quite important in the, the next part of the story, which will come to in a moment comes to dangers but that's what they recommend and the rcog would back them and other abortion providing groups would say well yeah if a woman changes her mind just don't take the second pill and then wait and see what happens but don't take progesterone at all costs um so we we then wrote to the gmc this is where it gets very interesting when, when it comes there to my story. we wrote to the gmc in 2019 um saying that if it if a doc if a woman comes to a doctor any doctor, and says, I've taken the first abortion pill, I've changed my mind, basically I've withdrawn consent, because it is, you have to give consent for any medical procedure, so they were in effect withdrawn consent from, from proceeding with abortion, so I've changed my mind, I want to save my baby, help me. He said, what is a doctor supposed to do in that situation? And the reply we got from the GMC was a bit non-committal, but on the other hand, it was quite helpful. They said, well, we're not allowed, the GMC does not um, give opinion on clinical situations. They can't give clinical advice. They're not necessarily doctors. But, and they directed us to their to their guidelines. If a patient with any condition um, or is undergoing any treatment or management strategy, they're entitled to know all of the options available to them at any stage of the, right. of the, right. of the process. So they're entitled to know all of the options available to them, and they're entitled to withdraw consent at any stage along that pathway as well. And we thought, well, okay, they haven't said that. We, well, it wasn't sort of totally supportive of, of abortion pill reversal. Said that at least it suggests what we were thinking ourselves that you know patients are entitled to know what options are available to them. They're allowed to discuss these options, and if the doctor and the patient feels this is the right thing for them, and we know that it's safe and effective, then you know we should well, conscientiously we should provide the service to them. So that's the way we look. So we became determined then at that point that we would uh, try and help women in somehow or other. Then the next question was, you know, how do we get drugs to these people? We, do we have to have doctors all over the country that are available at all times of the day and night? Um, and then I mentioned my colleague Eileen Riley. Eileen um, is an obstetrician working in, in Scotland. 
And her and I had discussions about this because she was very keen to, to try and establish the service as well. And it almost came about by accident. The very first call that we got, because at this stage I was still wondering how can, how can women contact us and how could we get drugs, progesterone to them if they do contact us? Because at this stage I'd satisfied myself that it was necessary. I'd looked up the protocols that were used in the States. I was happy to prescribe it if, if, you know, if women did come to me desperately seeking help. And then there's, um, we did it through a, an American helpline. So, and that's how most of the women contact us, actually. There's a wonderful organization called Heartbeat International. And sometime around 2016 or so, they took over the abortion reversal service. George Delgado and another one, Dr. Matthew Harrison, had established it in 2012. Then it, it, it grew, you know, it grew bigger and bigger. And so it needed a proper organizational structure. So Heartbeat International, which I think, are, I presume are a pro-life organization, they decided to take it over and they would network throughout the whole of the country. So they would have nurses on call 24 hours a day to take calls. They would have a whole network of doctors in every state in the, oh. in the union. So they had, they had a really well-established uh, network at this stage by 2020. So uh, we found out, Eileen, almost by accident, that we could register with this organization. That, and then if they received a call from the UK, which they were already doing, they at least had some doctors in the UK that they could contact. Got you. And it came by accident because Ireland was already, there was one or two doctors in Ireland were already providing the service. And one day a call came through to the American helpline from a woman in England saying, um, I've taken the first abortion pill. I've, I've read your website. Uh, is there anything you can do to help me? And being American, they thought England, Ireland, it's, it's all the same. So they rang one of their contacts in Ireland I said, listen, we've got this woman in England who, can, can you help her? And you had to explain, I'm really sorry, but I'm only allowed to prescribe in, in my own jurisdiction in the Republic of Ireland. But but I know somebody who might be able to help, and he contacted Eileen. Okay. And, uh, and that's how the front that Eileen uh, was able to help that, that woman, I think. Um, and then he informed us, and then Eileen informed me that, you know, if we registered with this Heartbeat International, they'd have to ask us a few questions to make sure that we were credible and, and capable of doing what they what they were the service continue the service that they were providing or to help with it so we registered with them so then they had our contact numbers that if a woman from the uk called for help said oh i'll see you we have some doctors in the in in the uk that might be able to help you in this situation so they would send us a, a whatsapp message or a or a phone call and, and ask us we have this woman she wants to help she's consented to She's allowed me to give you her contact details. Can you contact her? So then we would phone them. It's interesting because that's how the, the women contacted us. Uh, in every case, I think without exception, these mothers, once they've taken the first abortion pill, if they then change their mind, the very first thing that they do is they go back to Mary Stopes or B-Pass or whatever clinic has given them the drug. And they say, I've made a dreadful decision. I've changed my mind. I want to try and save my baby. What can I do? And in every case, they're told either, oh, nothing you can do is too late. Your baby's already dead. Can't do anything. Or some of them were told, well, there's a chance your baby might survive. Uh, I don't know what uh, if they were ever told. So just don't take the second pill and see what happens. Or some of them were told, oh, you'll have to go and talk to your own family doctor about that. So, so some of them would go to the GPs, although in those days, in the COVID pandemic days, it was very difficult to get GP appointments. But some of them right, yeah. Maybe a phone call, but in every case, the GP would say, "Oh, nothing to do with me. Go back to Harry Stokes or Bipa." So they've been sent around in circles. Terrible. Some of them went to some of them went to A and E services because emergencies, 
and we're again told, sorry, nothing we can do, there's no treatment. And then in desperation, those who did find us would go online and they'd type in abortion reversal or abortion pill reversal or something, and they'd get Heartbeat International's website. And they'd be either they'd either do an email correspondence or a phone call correspondence, and then they would be put in touch with us. There was a time delay, and that, that was part of the reason why you know, 25 hours is our average time rather than six or seven hours as in the, in the US. Uh, but, but the system worked, worked quite well. It, there's room for improvement, but it's, it's working quite well. So sure. some of the women managed to find us through some of the, the local pro-life organizations like SPUC or Good Council um, and one or two other crisis pregnancies and that, that they had come across in the UK. That they, but again, they all found them online by typing in Know, help to help to save my baby or abortion reversal that that's how they got them. the majority were from the american american helpline and so have you guys got any plans to set up a, a uk branch of um, heartbeat international at all or is do you think for the for right now it's just it's working okay for them to call the helpline in america and then be redirected to you guys yeah, we had we were in the process of doing that. We were setting up a a, a joint UK Ireland website. Okay, the website was all. In fact, I think it was even it was even established and it was running. But then it, it just coincided with the time that uh, complaints were made about us, and they, they they decided until that was all sorted, they were going to shut down the website again, because uh, the doctors in Ireland were a little bit concerned because complaints were made about myself and Dr. Riley. Um, by not by any of the women. The women were all very happy with what we were providing, but the, the complaints were made by the abortion providers, by the RCOG, and in, certainly in my case, I'm not sure about Eileen's case, but in my case, it was the RCOG and the medical director of Mary Stokes complained to the GMC that we were behaving unethically, that we were guilty of, or potentially guilty of professional misconduct, that we were imposing our uh, pro-life beliefs and our Catholic beliefs on these um, vulnerable women. Um, that we were not following the guidelines for abortion provision, which is quite funny. Um, <laughs> that, that, that we, yeah, we weren't providing abortion. That we were, um, that in my case, that I was acting outside of my area of, of specialty. And that's why I said earlier that it's quite important that I, that I have transferable skills. Right, got you. Yeah, that's where that connects. Yeah, so if I was purely a cardiologist, then you could say, what business is this guy doing uh, prescribing progesterone to, okay you might look after women in pregnancy who've got heart problems and some do uh, do have to do that from time to time but you know you shouldn't be doing meddling this but the when the case was investigated they that that was one of the the allegations that was sort of thrown out straight away by the, the expert witnesses they said absolutely no reason why any doctor who has a license to practice should not be involved in this type of thing and then they said that this treatment doesn't work it's bogus treatment it's junk science it's dangerous because that brings us to the, that this is a very important one because there was danger was never mentioned until until these allegations were made against us. So all of, I mentioned this guy, Harvey Grossman, his big gripe was that, oh, women don't change their mind. There's no need for this. And then they tried to say that, yeah, there may be a need, but it doesn't work. You know, there's no evidence that it works. But then the evidence was being produced, you know, thousands mm. of babies being born. The study by Delgado shown that you know, the 68% success rate so more and more evidence was becoming available. Statements like that guy Harvey Kleiman, that you know, my daughter got took me for breast, that this is what I do for her. Uh, so it was difficult to sort of stand by that, that that doesn't work. So they had to come up with a new a new excuse for objecting to it. So it became now dangerous. 
So this other guy called Mitchell Crinan decided for once and for all, he was going to show that this, this didn't work, that it was a bogus treatment. And he, he, set, he set up a study, I almost hesitate to call it a study because it was a very poorly designed study. He was going to, he decided he only needed 40 patients to, to prove this. There's, there's, in the history of medicine, there's no study that only looks at 40 patients. If you want to show a difference yeah. between one treatment and another, you, you need hundreds and not thousands of patients. So he was going to do this with 40 patients. So it was a, it, he was designed in a study um, determined to, to fail. He, well, he wanted it to fail, basically. There's no other explanation for why he would do that. He didn't, he called it a randomized controlled trial. Now it's randomized in that the women could have been put into one of two groups, but certainly wasn't controlled. He didn't take into account the ages of the women, the BMI, the, the size, the height, the BMI, the obstetric history, the medical history, other medications. Um, lots of factors. He didn't take into account even the, the stage of gestation was, you know, there was a wide range of several weeks apart, which can be crucial. So it certainly wasn't a controlled trial. It was a randomized trial where he, women who were already going to undergo um, an abortion, surgical abortion, he persuaded them, or he and his colleagues persuaded them to postpone it for two weeks or 15 days to allow them to, to, to try this, this bogus treatment. So they were all given mifepristone on day one. So the plan was that there would be 20 in each group. So there would be 20 in a, in a progesterone group and 20 in a placebo group. So they all got mifepristone day one. And then 24 hours later, they would get either progesterone and continue then progesterone for um, two weeks, or they would be given placebo and they wouldn't know which is which, so the drugs would look the same. So and that was, and then to see would there be a difference at the end. Um, they managed to recruit 12 women um, so for, he was planning to start off with 40, but then only 12 got recruited. Two of, two of that 12 dropped out themselves, voluntarily dropped out. They didn't want to continue, wanted to just go ahead and have the abortion. So they dropped out within a couple of days, um, one in each group. So that left five in each group. And then they said they stopped it because there was too, too many episodes of bleeding. Now, as I said earlier, everybody is going to bleed with mifepristone. Um, three of the women had to attend or allegedly had to attend their local ER or emergency services because of the bleeding. What sort of is overlooked that, so they said, oh, three women out of 12, that's, that's, that's too high. We can't continue with this trial, it's too dangerous. You know, they were only going to get 40 at the beginning with. I suspect what the reason, the, the real reason that it was discontinued um, is that at the end of, well, when they'd recruited those first 10 patients, when they looked at the, the results, was five in the progesterone group, five in the placebo group. At, at 15 days, four out of five were still pregnant in the progesterone group. And two out of five were pregnant in the, still pregnant at 15 days in the placebo group. That was basically doubling the survival rate with, with that small number of, of, of uh, subjects. Similarly, they, of the women who bled, two of them had heavy bleeding in the placebo group. One of them needed a blood transfusion, the other needed emergency surgery. In the placebo group. So they received mifepristone. So it was mifepristone caused the bleeding, not, not the placebo, it was the mifepristone. Right. And one woman bled in the progesterone group. And her bleeding was much lighter. First of all, she bled within 48 hours. So that was the time that if a woman was going to complete her abortion with misoprostol, that's the time she'd be taken anyway. So she, she just bled very early, as a lot of women do. And secondly, she, when she was checked out in her ER, her blood count hadn't dropped, her blood pressure was fine. She didn't need any treatment. She was sent home. Um, so basically the study was showing that even though with those small numbers, progesterone was doubling the survival rate and reducing by half the risk of serious bleeding, probably by more than half. 
So that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, Mr. Crinan was trying to show that this treatment was rubbish, but there was the exact opposite. So they had to find some way to discredit, to discredit the APR treatment. So they came out with this, oh, it's too dangerous. Three women have had a serious bleed. We had to stop the oh, okay. prematurely. No study gets stopped because three patients have side effects. Yeah. Um, even at the mouse. So th- it's it's just and surprisingly it was the, the article was published. So then they, they started to use that, you know, it's too dangerous. And, and that was used against us in, our, in the trial. But what's really interesting here is I mentioned that the NHS England, that their response was when they when they wrote back to us, oh no, we we only recommend expectant management. That means if a woman changed her mind, she's taken mifepristone, to just don't take the second pill. If if they were to sort of follow that through and follow what Mitchell Prinan was saying. That's the worst thing you could possibly do, because if you're not taking the follow-up misoprostol, then you've got a, a higher risk of bleeding, possibly. Because right. at least with, proge- with progesterone, you, you you'll reduce your risk of bleeding. Uh, so if you take misoprostol, you might reduce your risk of bleeding, but you'll complete your abortion. Uh, if you take progesterone, you might save your baby, and you have a much lower risk of bleeding. Um, whereas what the NHS England's recommend is all oh, do nothing, just wait and see, and that's. You know, if you went by that study, which is a, a poorly designed study, but that's the one that they use against us. If you follow that, then that's what NHS England is recommending. That's the sure way you're going to get a heavy bleeding. So that's unbelievable. It's all very inconsistent and hypocritical. And there yeah. isn't there isn't any strong argument against APR. First of all, if they say they're pro-choice, then they should be respecting the woman's choice that I want to save my baby. Now, some yeah. of the women, after they've made that choice, then change their mind again usually due because they're being coerced by someone else. And so some of the women that I've helped have initially gone with progesterone and then I've said, I'm really sorry, I can't continue with this. I'm, I'm going to have to go ahead and have the termination. And that's really very sad, but that, that does happen. But yeah. no, nothing, I, I don't try to, there's no point in trying to persuade people to to do otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so, so they should be respecting choice. They cannot say that it doesn't work because it does work. They cannot say there isn't a need. There is a great need, um, probably even greater than we realise. And they cannot say it's dangerous because if anything, it's much. It's it's the safest thing to do. If, if a woman takes mifepristone and changes her mind, she's got three options. One is that she can go ahead and against her will, go ahead with the abortion. And that's what some of the abortion providers will, will recommend. You just have to go ahead and have the abortion. And that's against her will. So you're forcing her to do something against her will which is against the law. She can follow what NHS England and the RCOG recommend as expected management. Just don't take the second pill and see what happens. And she's got a, at best a 20% chance her baby might survive. And she's got an increased risk of, of bleeding heavily by doing that. Or she could do the third option, which is what we recommend. Take progesterone and take it for a few weeks. And uh, it, it varies from case to case, but up until... At least if we can get them into the second trimester. So ideally, I like to treat them up to 14 weeks if possible. Then she will at least more than double her chance of her baby surviving than compared to doing nothing. And almost certainly reduce the risk of, of serious hemorrhage as well in, in doing that. So they're the three options. And we would highly recommend that progesterone is the best of those, of those yeah, three. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing to me that like the evidence is so clear and the reasoning why you should take progesterone is so clear. And yet the RCOG, the GPs and the abortion clinics themselves are all saying, no, don't do it when they claim to be pro-choice. And surely, surely 
the option for progesterone adds to you know the plethora of choices that there are for women but oh no we don't want you to know about progesterone like what why they it's it's crazy that that's not being questioned more and it's not be it's not more well known amongst society it's 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 unbelievable and i i think i think people more people should should be aware which hopefully this podcast will do is make them aware of what's happening um in in that sphere um i suppose just to go back to the the women that come to you then what's what's the what's the main what's the main reason they went to take the abortion pill in the first place is there a common pattern that you see is it is it coercion is it or is it yeah. something else is it yeah it's uh it's lots of it's lots of every story is different but in some cases at least in two of the the girls that i've had they've been put under pressure by social services Right. And in one case, there was a youngish, young woman who already had a young child and she was threatened that if she didn't have an abortion now that she was pregnant again, they would take the first child off her. That's, that can't be right. So she was under tremendous pressure. Now, she 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 was great. She did take the first abortion pill, but instantly she changed. She got to me quite quickly. So I got she got treatment within six or seven hours. I'm pretty certainly right. well within 12 hours. Um. They phoned the people who were doing the abortion because she was meant to, because they didn't trust her to do things properly. They phoned her the next day to know where was she, that she hadn't turned up for the second pill. So she was meant to go and pick it up in person or be given it in person. And she said, oh no, I've changed my mind. I'm going to save my baby. I've spoken to a lovely doctor and he's given me progesterone. And they laughed at her. There was a nurse on the other and they laughed at her. And they said, he said, that treatment is rubbish. It doesn't work. Your baby's already dead. They told her. And she phoned me then in tears to know, is that true? The nurse told me, my because the nurse tells you something, you're going to believe it. But my baby's already dead, is that true? Now, she hadn't had any bleeding at that stage. She did have a little bit later on, but none at that stage. She hadn't had any cramps. So it was, it was, you know, she'd only taken, it was less than 24 hours from the, or about 24 hours from the, from the Mifepristone tablet. I said, very unlikely. There's a very good chance your baby still survived, but we, we do need to get a scan. So she got a scan two or three days later and her baby was alive and well and kicking. And then she got another scan then a few weeks later and the baby was still alive and well. And she continued the progesterone and she gave birth then a few months later to a little baby girl. Aww. She calls her her princess. Uh, but that's, she was she was put under tremendous pressure by the social services too. But they laughed at her and she she was so true because I think she had to get the scan done in the place where they were trying to get make her have the abortion. She was just so thrilled to be able to rub it in their face there, my baby's mm. still alive. Absolutely. So she, she she's been great, but but so so so, so one one girl one slightly older woman was put under pressure by a GP that you know you're not going to be able to cope with another pregnancy. So it doesn't happen very often, but at least in one case, a GP was trying to put pressure on on the, on the woman to have the abortion. In most cases, it's it's the uh, partners. Um, right. Okay. In one case, it was parents. I think of of a, of a young woman. Um, trying to insist that she that she have an abortion, um, but it's usually the partner, the boyfriend, and they're often the ones that start the treatment and then can't continue. And in one case, poor girl who really wanted to save her baby said, "I'm really sorry, but my boyfriend says he's going to commit suicide if if I don't have the abortion." And that's that's emotional blackmail. Yeah, the highest the highest sort. Um, and unfortunately, she went ahead with it with the abortion then. 
but, but she really wanted to save her baby and she knew what she was doing was wrong but she she would feel so guilty if her boyfriend did kill himself now mm. just wonder how long that relationship is going to last um you know, mm. anyone who would put you under that pressure i don't think they're, they're the person for you in your life absolutely that may be a little, little bit judgmental of me but no, uh, no, no i didn't say, i didn't say i didn't say that to the girl but uh, i would i would have my worries about the prospects of that unless there's a conversion a remarkable conversion mm. i mean someone who would put their partner or their girlfriend or wife under pressure that if you don't kill that baby i'm not going to be around anymore i'm going to kill myself or i'm going to leave you or things are not going to be the same that that's just terrible oh absolutely i mean it just shows you like how much how important it is for partners to support um women who do find themselves pregnant or in a crisis pregnancy situation because it does genuinely go such a long way doesn't it i mean if you if you, you know, emotionally blackmail someone like your partner who's just fallen pregnant, I mean, it's inevitably like in the majority of cases going to end up in sheer resentment down the line, I'd imagine. And, you know, it's just no good for anyone. Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, they say, um, you know, they say like um, no uterus, no opinion and all that um, with regards to, men obviously voicing their thoughts on abortion but it just shows you like you know what men think like male partners actually does it has such a bearing on the outcomes of of what a woman decides to do if she feels like emotionally supported physically supported then you know that's that's pretty much half the battle if not more um do you think that COVID-19 sort of had an impact on the on the amount of women that came to you then for the abortion re- reversal pill like did that have any effect in any way or yeah, it's difficult to know um, I, I don't think so because um, the, the service we provided was um, over telephone and that's how in a way we were imitating um, what the abortion people are doing because most most abortions nowadays are done by telemedicine. Yeah. As I said, that 85% are, are are done by drugs anyway. And more than half of those in, in, in the UK are, are done by, without a doctor or a nurse ever meeting the, the guard, just a phone call or maybe a second phone call, um, which has, has its own problems. Um, but we, we emulated that. So, and we were allowed to do so. And then even though one of the accusations against us that we were prescribing remotely, that we weren't seeing these women, that's just beyond a joke. When that's exactly what they were doing, and they yeah, were doing exactly, it, it's there are tens of thousands. We we were doing the odd one here and there. That they were doing tens of thousands a, a week, um, and and a lot of women having serious complications. So we know that there's a lot of hemorrhage for women who undergo abortion by uh, by drugs. A lot of them will have bleeding. A lot of them will uh, heavy bleeding that will require a hospital admission and blood transfusion. A lot of them will have incomplete abortion that requires subsequent uh, surgical evacuation and a hospital admission. A lot of them will have infections. We know the overall, the, the ones we know about are at least one in 17. There's been over, more than in the last two years, been uh, well over 10,000 women in the UK alone have required emergency care directly as a result of complications of the abortion pills. Ten, more than wow. 10,000. That's The average is 500 a month. 
and they're the ones we know about because a lot of and I I, I know this from from my own experience that mm. a lot of these mothers don't want it on their medical record that they're that they've had an abortion. So some of them will present to their local casualty departments or walk-in centres with with heavy bleeding or infections, and say um, I'm having a, a natural miscarriage, so even though they may have taken the mifepristone because they don't want it on the medical record. Because a lot of the girls are very much afraid that are you going to tell my GP about this? And I have to reassure them, no, I'll only do whatever you want me to do. If you're well within your rights to keep this as confidential, if you want to tell your GP, I'm happy to to write your GP. And only in a small number of cases have I actually written to the to the girls' GPs because they've asked me specifically not to. Uh, right. And only those only those who explicitly want me to do it do I do, I do that because they don't want it on the medical record. And I'm sure it's the same with women presenting with complications of the abortion pill because there's no way of knowing is this a natural miscarriage or is it a drug induced miscarriage. Um, but I bet if you look into the statistics, you'll find that the the numbers of women presenting with miscarriage are much higher now than this for for emergency care, much higher now than they would have been a number of years ago. And mm-hmm. almost certainly all down to, uh, it's, it's not because there's a sudden change in the fertility of, of mothers in this country, it's uh, down to the abortion pills. So at, le- at least one in 17, but that could be as high as one in 10. You know, so it's six or 7%, but it could be up to 10% of serious complications that require um, emergency care. Yeah. I mean, we know from studies, the studies when probably more truthful countries that are less to hide, maybe uh, from Finland and Scandinavia, that there is a much higher complication rate with with these drug-induced abortions, even compared to surgical abortions. And that's even taken into account that surgical abortions tend to be performed at a later stage when the risks generally are a little bit higher anyway, so 12, 14, 16 weeks. Um, whereas the, the most of the, the, the drug-induced ones are under 10 weeks or under 12 weeks. Um, but even take that into account, the, the risk of a significant complication is four times higher with the from Scandinavian studies, and right. um, than it is with, uh, with with medical with drug induced abortion compared to surgical abortion. Interesting. That um, seems to be overlooked as well. Yeah. Why Why do you think that all this stuff is overlooked? Like, why Why do you think that? Because it almost feels like, like especially in the UK, there's there's almost a conscious effort to suppress this kind of information getting out to the general public like why why do you think that is well there's a, there's a vested there's a strong vested interest uh, abortion is a very lucrative business um I, it, it's again i don't know it depends on the stage of the station but on average about 500 pound per procedure and the, the vast majority of uh, 90 99 of abortions are paid for by the, by the taxpayer in the uk certainly in england wales i'm sure scotland is the same yeah. Um, 99%, 70% of abortions are done in privately, right? So they're, it's contracted by the NHS. So the NHS pays for everything, but it's contracted out to provi- private providers like BPAS and Mary, Mary Stokes. Stokes yeah. Pass being the, they're the two biggest ones. BPAS okay. is the biggest, Mary Stokes second. UPAS, I think, is the third. Um, so they get all the money. And what's, what's really bothers me is that they, they don't pay for the, they don't contribute anything to the, to the NHS for the complications then that arise from the dirty work that they're doing. So they'll really? perform the abortion, they give out the drugs or whatever way they do the abortion, complications will arise. The women will, they're told by Mary Subs, if you have any problems, go to your local A&E. If you're bleeding, go to A&E. If you, if you soak more than two pads in two consecutive hours, go to A&E. So they're dependent on the local NHS services to bail them out basically, and they don't contribute a penny to them. So 
I, I think we should be at least putting pressure maybe on the government or on the Department of Health to say, you've got to start charging these people. If they're causing complications, not paying for them, then surely the bill should be put at their door. And that might help a little bit. They're still, they're still, it's not going to stop them doing abortions, mind you. Mm. So there is a, it's, it's a lucrative business. And then it's just an ideology. Some people are just don't like life. They're, they're anti-life. We're pro-life and others are anti-life and will do anything they can to, to, to drag us down and to, to so the, the same people by and large who are very strongly pro-abortion will also be pro-euthanasia. Why yeah. would that be? So both ends of life, it's, it's very few people who will be anti-abortion will say, oh yeah, but I think a euthanasia is a good thing or vice versa. Uh, yeah. Someone who's anti-euthanasia think, yeah, I, I, I like, uh, we should protect people when they're old and vulnerable and sick, but you know, I'm still very much in favor of, of aborting babies at Down's yeah. or uh, cleft palate or other social reasons. Indeed. So, so by and large, it tends to be the same people who are pro-life will be across the board pro-life. Pro-life, yeah. Those who are yeah. anti-life uh, or have no problem with with, with killing. Because basically, that's by allowing by allowing things like euthanasia and abortion by allowing it to be performed. You're basically you're allowing doctors to become killers, and now you're allowing mm -hmm. nurses to become killers. Yeah, um, so, I know it's it's totally. Oh no, no, it can't be right at all. And I think. To your point about, you know, there are genuinely just some people who don't like life. It's, it's, it was quite eye-opening once we started, because obviously we do a lot of work on social media, trying to connect with young people. And so, you know, we're on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter. Twitter. Well, but we're, I mean, the one where we see the most, the most display of anti-life rhetoric is on TikTok. I mean, oh. you should just see some of the comments, like from these, like even young kids, like commenting, like things that you couldn't even imagine that it's just ties into this idea that we do genuinely have a culture of death in our current society today. It's absolutely insane. And I think when we started doing our work on social media, um, I mean, obviously Eden's been doing it longer than a lot of us in the team, but I think all of us have had a hand in it up until this point since we started. And I think for a lot of us, it was a complete eye opener to the fact that, yeah, you know, some people aren't even pro-choice. They are just genuinely pro-death and pro-abortion pro at the end of the day. Yeah. Like they, don't, they don't advocate for choice. They don't care about, you know, what's ultimately going to be best for the women. They just care so much about maintaining this rhetoric of, you know, like abortion is a good thing at the end yeah. of the day. It's yeah. it's crazy. There has been it's been a lot of brainwashing, um, and uh, as you alluded to, that we're not allowed to get the message out. So, um, I, I'm I'm very keen to try and promote. So I I I don't I don't do TikTok or Facebook. I don't, I don't understand those platforms, but I do, yeah, yeah. I, do I do Twitter, and I I try to just put regularly things out about abortion and uh, yeah. The, the well, I, I talk more about not so much abortion. I try to, to try and the value of life that every single human life has equal inherent value. That I'm no more important than you, and you're no more important than me. That we all have equal value, yeah. uh, and that's from conception. That there's no like there's no scientific doubt or biological doubt that life begins at conception. Yeah. Like you might say, well, you're not a person until whatever age, but just from the purely scientific fact that the whole. I am now the same person I was when I was an embryo and a fetus and then a zygote. I'm not any different. I'm obviously I've grown and 
hopefully developed in some positive ways. But uh, and then another, if I live another twenty years, I'll still be the same person that I was before I was born. And it's just a continue a continuum of of, of life. And yeah. no, nobody yeah. can dispute that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so if uh, so, unless there's a very strong evidence that the moral value or the value of the, of of a, an individual at a certain stage is worthless or not worth much or worth less than other people, then I think that the, the only safe answer is to say that all lives from conception to natural death have got equal inherent value. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise, if if you don't accept that, then it just leads you down. Well, you, you can you can justify anything, justify killing yeah. of black people or slaves or Jews or Slavs or Poles or Irish or Catholic. You can justify anything if you say that some group of humanity does not have the same value. Their lives are not as worthy as ours. Uh, their labels unvertus labor, lives unworthy of life. Yeah. Um, to use a phrase from the 1920s or 30s. Um, so it's just it's a dangerous route to go down, and we have, we have to try and let people see that I think. Yeah. But, but that message has been suppressed. We're not allowed to get that across. Where um, you won't see you, you won't see this sort of discussion on BBC. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that. Uh, uh, I have to correct you, mind you. You said that um, medical experts have have called for another investigation into Dr. Carney. Uh, that that was that was an article in the Times. It rose from I gave a talk to the Glasgow University Students for Life a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and there was a an art, there was a journalist from the Times. She was, I think, she was meant to be undercover, but we all knew she was there, so she's probably the world's worst undercover reporter. <laughs> uh, so I was particularly careful to make sure everything I said was very factual, like, knowing that that she was in the audience, and um, and of course she she managed to find. Uh, I, I mentioned just very honestly that of of all the women I, I treated, that two of them needed blood transfusion, but that was in the context of saying that any woman who takes mifepristone will, will have will bleed, and some will bleed very heavily. Uh, and, and some much, much more likely. So I was, I was putting in the, in the whole context, but she left out the context and said, oh, two women have bled this. And she called me, uh, or she quoted, she, she used the words of a of a politician in Scotland, who I won't name, to say that I was uh, using unethical and dangerous treatment. And that, But the way she reported was made as if I was, Dr. Carney has admitted using unethical and dangerous treatment. Uh, I certainly didn't admit it. I was, I, I was at pains to say this was safe and effective and very good, and there was a great need for it. And it was someone else's word she was trying to sort of attribute to me. Yeah. Um. But but then you you said that medical experts, because again, was report that medical experts have called. There was no medical experts in the report. The the medical expert they're referring to is the, the Scottish politician, the mentioned member of the Green Party, was not a medical expert. Um. There's the, the medical director of MSI, who is certainly not an expert, um, in in this area. Um, he's not med- med- he was the only doctor mentioned in the, uh, uh, to, to give an opposing view in the whole article. And then there was the, one of the directors of BPAS, who's not a doctor either, and she yeah. called for investigation. So these people are calling for investigation, but suddenly it's medical experts are calling for it. But there, was, there wasn't a single medical expert among them. There was one medical person who's certainly not an expert uh, on, in this area. And then the others were a politician and a, a PR person. Uh, yeah. So the, so the, so the article in the Times, the, the other thing was, which was almost embarrassing for the Times, you'd think they'd have more sense, is that they called it an exclusive. That there was nothing presented at the meeting. That I, I've been talking about this since the charges were dropped against me um, last February, February 2022. Yeah. 20, uh, I've been trying to promote this, and I've spoken, uh, in fact, I'd spoken to Parliament, uh, to a group in Parliament about it 
even before the charges were brought against me, that was in March 2021. Um, I've spoken at, at the March for Life in Dublin, the March for Life in London, the March for Life in Zurich. I've been on lots of these sort of uh, podcast type things, trying to promote it. I've been on Twitter trying to get the message across. And they put it on the exclusive that they had just inside information, but there was nothing new that I yeah. hadn't already reported at, at the thing, and yet they were calling it an exclusive. Yeah, it's not like you've you've got anything to hide or that you've been trying to hide what you've been doing because it's all been like very good work and you know, like you say, there's over a hundred women that can that can provide yeah, no, testimony. No, no, no. I, 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 what I presented in Glasgow, I presented the, the first hundred cases that came to me. The hundred and two of have come to me now. I just talked about the first hundred. Um, but of those, and the, 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 again, another important point of uh, only 60, I can't remember the exact, 64, 65 actually went ahead with the treatment. So the other 36 at, spoke to me about it. They wanted to know about it, but they decided for whatever reason, mostly because of pressure from others. I but in some cases, well, one girl said, oh, if it's not on the NHS, then no, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Thank you very much. Um, but but I didn't put any pressure on. So one of the accusations against me was that I was uh, pressurizing these vulnerable women to follow my life views or to I was imposing my views on them but you know the fact that a third of them more than a third of them actually decided not to go ahead with the treatment I, I didn't go chasing after them or saying oh you'll go to hell if, if you don't go ahead with this treatment or I didn't put any pressure on on any of them yeah. and of those then who started the treatment uh, some of them then pulled out um, and I think in all of those cases it was because of pressure from partners or other people and then there was 11 lost to follow up who, most of whom were doing fine. Over half of that 11 were actually you know, well beyond the, the stage where, you know, where we could stop the progesterone and, and follow them up with uh, scan, occasional scans and uh, see how they were doing. And then they just disappeared off the radar. So I have to believe that probably they went ahead with the abortion. Some of them might have had a miscarriage yeah, yeah. and just didn't want to tell me they were maybe that hurt my feelings. Some of them might have had their babies and just didn't want to... They wanted this to be something in their past. They didn't want to have to deal with it anymore, that it was a, a bad phase of the life and now they're over it and they, they had the raise. So, so I don't know genuinely what happened. So, so of those, so we've had um, we've had 22, in, in my case, uh, Eileen had another 12 and two other operators who actually got involved as well, who I won't name. Okay. And at, at least two live babies have been born from other people, other doctors who, who've helped women in these situations. Amazing. And there may be more, but the two that I know of for, for definite. Eileen had definitely had 12, 14, and I've I have a 22, and there's another girl now who I just got a um, a text from her today. Actually, she's doing she's well over 20 weeks. Uh, she had her gender reveal scan. That's a little girl she's having. Uh, so she's probably about 24 weeks at this stage. So she's well past the. But once you get to 15 weeks, the risk of losing the baby at that stage is exactly the same as in any other pregnancy. So unfortunately, okay. miscarriages can happen in any normal pregnancy. So that's what I reassured the girls. If we can get to the 15 weeks, uh, the ch chances are very good. There's still always a chance that things can go wrong. That it won't be due to the mifepristone. It'll be just as with any other normal pregnancy. Yeah. The only exception to that is the, the, the one girl who was already seven, uh, almost between 16 and 17 weeks. In her case, I just gave her two weeks of treatment because... I knew she'd probably be okay, even without yeah. treatment. But but you, you don't know for certain. Yeah, that's I, it. I, I treat people with heart attacks every day, and I give them all the same treatment, even though I know that in some in some patients the treatment probably isn't going to have any real difference. But it's the same; it's the standard treatment for all of them. Yeah. Um, so like some people would benefit more from a certain treatment than others, but you don't know that in advance. You don't know who are the ones who are definitely going to get the benefit because you know who's most likely to get benefit, but. 
we, we give them all the same treatment. We don't discriminate. Yeah, but to be safe. Unless they're getting some sad, some serious side effects, then we have to modify things a little bit, and that doesn't happen. Occasionally, the girls get um, um, very tired with progesterone, and sometimes and, and uh, sick, nausea and tiredness are the two commonest side effects. And in a small number of them, especially if the girls are you know quite small or petite, I reduce the dose. So instead of giving them the full dose, I, I cut it back a little bit earlier than I normally would. Yeah, I've, and then that works out fine. It, it gets the symptoms usually under good under good control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, I suppose it's better but better to be safe than sorry. Um, even if you think that you know there's no real need if they get to that sort of seventeen week mark or fifteen week mark. Yeah, fifteen weeks is I, I that's my cutoff. If if they do well, if they're doing well at fifteen, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Are you still are you still in contact with any of the women that you help of? Oh yeah, um, I do. Yeah, so all of all of the girls who've all of the girls who've um, had their babies, so I send them, uh, uh, I send them all of first of all on their birthdays because they would I had to get their date of birth because I had to put that on the prescription. So I send them a little um, birthday wish, uh, happy birthday, and hope everything's going okay on their birthdays. And uh, they uh, now of of the of the twenty two that have been born that, that I'm that I helped with. 19 are already have had their first birthday so i've sent on the the birthday of all of the babies i've sent them all a little um little birthday wish for their for their child and they all respond they, they all like that and they all send the photo they send a photograph they here he is now or here she is now oh uh, that's so and I, one, one more one more girl in january she'll be she'll she had a baby into it and then the two more have had more recent births they'll, they'll be next year amazing uh, yeah so I, I keep in contact with some of them and actually one of the girls contacted me just this week uh, I don't want to say too much, but she, um, she, she, the treatment didn't work in her case, uh, but she bled very quickly. So even though it was December 2020 and got a treatment, it was about 24 hours when she started treatment. But by the next day, she was bleeding heavily, so the treatment just didn't work. Yeah. But she was very grateful. She was very grateful for what I did, and she contacted me. She's got she's got another issue she wants me to help her with. So she kept my number, and she knew that I was somebody that she could turn to. Um, yeah, because uh, all of the girls, um, they all said really nice things. Because in the in the, the case against me, we had to get it. There were some expert witnesses from obstetricians who gave their opinion on, on both sides, from the GMC side and from my side. And they were all both of them were surprisingly supportive of, of abortion pill reversal and mm. uh, saw nothing wrong with a cardiologist doing it. Uh, but we also got statements from a, a number of the the women that we helped, and uh, they were. They were very touching. I, I I didn't. I knew that the girls were very appreciative, but until I read some of the things that they, they were saying about me, I, I was I, I was astonished at some of the yeah. nice comments. That uh, I was I was in tears actually reading some of them that I didn't realize how much it meant to them what what I and what Eileen had been doing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I can imagine. Like obviously, it's it's probably. I mean, I can imagine it's probably quite a stressful job. Like quite a stressful thing thing to do but it's also probably i imagine incredibly rewarding like how how does it make you feel knowing that you know you've been able to do all this work and that there are there are actual like human beings who are alive because of a part that you had to play in in their mother's pregnancy like how how does that do you ever like think about that sometimes like just while you're sitting by by yourself and just like does that ever hit you I'm never by myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, 
it does actually. Yeah, it no, it does. It's um, and Eileen and I have discussed this among ourselves. Um, I, I qualified in '89. Eileen was a few years later, and in all those years of everything I've done in medicine, this was by far and away the most rewarding, from a personal point of view, the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Wasn't always easy. There was um, there was times when I want I thought I can't continue doing this, especially if. It, if you had three failures in a row, or and that happened once or twice, where you one, two, three, you try them and everything's looking good, and then they, they miscarry, and you just think, what's the point? Um, but then you get two or three successes, and everything's going fine, and it, it makes it all worthwhile. So it is very emotional, and I get, I get, I get very distraught when, when, uh, when the girls tell me them, you know, I'm so sorry to tell you that I've, I've lost the baby in the scan and yeah. show the baby hasn't survived. That's it's really heartbreaking uh, it's, I'm sure it's heartbreaking for them but it's also heartbreaking for me so I'm able to as well share in their sorrow but I, I get very upset about that but then it's a it's a great joy when they especially when it's one that you think maybe isn't going to go so good in fact the very first success I had was a, a woman who had quite a lot of bleeding and she was quite she was only six weeks and I thought the chances of success were not great but we gave her treatment anyway and and then when she got her first scan and her baby was alive and well, then if she got a second scan at 12 weeks and everything was looking great, and then she had her, her little boy. Um, the, those ones, the ones that be when you think that they're not going to survive when they actually do survive, it, it's, it's, it's great. It's, 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 yeah. it's, a, it's a lovely, it, it makes it all worthwhile. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I'm um, a strong promoter of it, trying to encourage other doctors to, to think about getting involved as well. Because we do need more. We need more people to be aware of it because uh, there is a need there. Um, for the, ni the nine months that, that we weren't available, because um, I, I kept in contact with Heartbeat International because I knew that women were still going to contact because uh, they wouldn't have known that there was no service uh, allowed to operate. Mm. And 160 women in the UK and seven in Ireland contacted the, the helpline looking for help in that nine-month period. And I had to be told, very sorry, but there's nobody, no doctor is available in in the UK or Ireland uh, during that, that period of time. Yeah. So hopefully we can get a few more people involved and hopefully we can get it up and running even stronger than, than ever before. Um, Absolutely. Will that be a focus for 2023 then? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I have a couple of meetings I still have to go to. I've, um, I'm going to... I, I broke the news because when my case was going... Because things were looking bad in our case. It was meant to be... Uh, we. Uh, the, the first uh, hearing that we had, both Eileen and myself, we were two separate hearings, but on the same day, uh, we were both banned from doing this. So we, we were the first, in, a, in effect, we were the first doctors in history to be banned from to be banned from saving lives. That, that's no two ways about it. That just you cannot say you cannot do this, even though we were able to show that this was life saving. So we were yeah. banned from doing it, pending an investigation. Now, the investigation could have been done in half an hour, and yet they said that it was going to take eighteen months. And then there was to be uh, interim hearings in the meantime. And my, my legal team from Christian Legal Centre, who were wonderful, um, first hearing, fine, you expect things not to go your way on that one. But the second hearing, when we produced all the evidence, at this stage, we got all great statements from the women, our expert witness, GMC had nothing, uh, didn't even have oh, their own yeah. expert witness at that stage. So we had all the evidence and we turned up at the next hearing um, thinking that maybe this, this is it now, it's going to be the charges against us are going to be dropped. And we were told right at the beginning, oh, we're not going to look at any evidence. This is just to look at the allegations again. What's the point of having the hearing? And when that happened twice, my legal team said, this enough is enough. This is a joke. We're going to take this to a proper court. 
Yeah. So they applied to the to the high court. Um, so basically, I took the GMC to, to court with my legal team, and uh, I thought they would. I thought that would take years because there was a massive backlog with COVID and so on. Um, but surprisingly, we only put the application in at the end of September, twenty one, and we were granted a hearing for the end of February, twenty twenty two. So we were getting ready for that and getting all our documents and things all set. The GMC in the meantime did get an expert witness who surprisingly was very supportive of the work that we were. That I was doing, amazing. And then six days before the the hearing was due to to take place, the the, the, the charges against me were, were evoked. The charges against me were that I was not allowed to administer, uh, prescribe, or recommend progesterone for abortion pill reversal. That was the main charge against me. wasn't allowed to do any voluntary work or any private work either, which wasn't a big deal. I don't do any private work outside of this, which I, I don't get paid for by the way. Yeah. Um, so, so six days before the hearing. So then I was due to go to America. I'd been invited to, to tell my story at the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians, Gynecologists, a wonderful group called APLOG. So there's over about 5,000, several thousand members uh, who are you know, qualified obstetricians, gynecologists, and they're pro-life. So they were interested in my story. And by that stage, things were looking bad. Nobody knew. So the, the day after... Um, the court hearing was meant to be on the 24th of February, and I was meant to give my talk at the, on the 20, 25th of February in in uh, in Nashville, in, in America. And we, we our flight was delayed. We got there literally half an hour before I was to walk on. The flight got delayed. It got cancelled the first day, and then was delayed. And then uh, I walked into the room. But uh, my luggage got went off to Washington. I went to so I was actually at this very top on me uh, <laughs> the lovely, a lovely suit in my suitcase and that went off to Washington when I so we had to apologize I had a t-shirt everybody else had suits and ties and nice dresses Brilliant. so so I, I walked in this scruffy guy who hadn't washed for three days <laughs> in a dirty clothes uh, and nobody knew I whispered to one of the there was one of the ladies from Heartbeat International was there I said have you heard the news she said no I know nothing and I said I might have a nice surprise I whispered that to her just before I went up and then I told I told the story, and then I, no nobody knew anything about. It. And then I said, uh, "24th of February, I was meant to go to the High Court." I said I did go to London that day, but it wasn't to the High Court. Right. And then there was a sort of a whoa, 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 whoa. and it was actually we were, I'd been invited down. So the day before we flew to America, we had a, a special photo shoot with some of the the mothers and fathers. I didn't Aww. mention the fathers. Like the fathers are not all bad. I did mention some of the fathers let their let their 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 girlfriends and their wives down. Mm. But there were some really, really inspiring fathers involved in the story too. So three of the couples came along with their babies. So mum and dad and baby. And the, the, the dad, it was the first time I really realised that the dads have are playing such an important role here by standing by their uh, their, their, their girlfriends, their, their wives. Yeah. Um, so we, we went for the photo shoot and, I, and then I put up the sort of thing that I, the, the charges had been revoked. And the place erupted. They all stood up and gave a standing ovation. It was lovely. I, I wasn't expecting that. I thought that... They say, oh yeah, that's that's very nice. But they all, it meant something to them. This this was a, a little victory for the pro life movement, mm. uh, which I never really thought. I thought it was just a small little thing that myself and Eileen were doing locally. But it was it was much bigger picture than that. It was because we we get bashed a lot. We lose a lot of battles, you know, buffer zones or uh, yeah, like, uh, not being allowed to get our message across on the media. The Down syndrome decision in the High Court. We, lots of defeats and things that would. Uh, affect your morale. So this was just a little victory. And I think they they appreciated that for for what it was, because um, it was it was really a David and Goliath, like just a 
a doctor from Ireland fighting the GMC shouldn't have been, it should have been no contest, like a flyweight against a super heavyweight. And yeah. Yet, yeah, we, we won the, we won that, that round of the war. Now it's it's not over yet. There, there there may be one or more two little twists in the in the, in the tale. Yeah, indeed. Don't say anything about that just yet. Yeah, I do think. Do you know what? I do think for as much for as many battles as like I mean the whole of the pro life movement and the different organisations within it lose. I do think that you know people are some people are starting to wake up and it's getting easier to communicate the rationale behind what we believe especially with tools like like you say social media and and other things like that it's well here's a question for you do you think that it's possible for abortion to be made illegal yeah um it's it's not going to it's not going to happen overnight in this country anyway but I've I have no doubt that probably it might take. I'm thinking sort of in 2030s. So I think the next 10 years are going to be a struggle, and things might get worse before they get better. Yeah. But I think eventually, just as with slavery and apartheid and other atrocities uh, throughout history, the Holocaust, people yeah. will realize th- the humanity of the unborn, that the preborn. They will realize that I can't believe what we've been allowed to happen over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, so there will be, there will, a realization will come. I don't know what's going to bring about that realization. I presume just the hard work and the constant, uh, continued effort of groups like abortion resistance and SPUC and Life and uh, Good Council, the, the, the hard live action and so on in, in, in the US. The, just a continuous never say die. Attitude and the, the Roe v. Wade that was another small victory. Now, yeah, I was going to say it may, it may not be as the, the end product may not be as good as we would like. But you know, already if thousands of babies have already been saved, because laws do affect the way people think, Definitely. and laws do uh, re, um, affect behaviour. Uh, it's not going to save every baby. So, so some uh, people will go to other states where they can get abortions, and they'll they'll make use of that and. Uh, that'll continue to happen but it, it doesn't yeah. mean that we shouldn't keep fighting for um if we give up then well if we give up on that then you might as well give up on everything no but i've no exactly. doubt that they eventually the people will realize the world will realize the value of of human life absolutely of human life and that all lives have equal value and yeah. that to intentionally because that's what abortion is a lot they, they they try to use all these euphemisms and Know that it's oh it's not it's not killing a child it's ending a pregnancy, that's a cesarean section ends a pregnancy, a induction of labour and delivery ends a pregnancy. But they're missing the key point. What's the difference between a cesarean section with a live healthy baby and an abortion that's ending? So missing the point that actually well the intention is to kill. So it's all about intention. Yeah, and it's very very interesting. You know the the referendum in Ireland, and I use this quite a lot to inform people. I, I look very carefully at the wording. The, the Irish are very they're very particular about their words. If you ask you know, Oscar Wilde or William Butler, yeah, Irish people like words. They say, well, why use one word when a hundred will do? You, know, you want to, we like using words in a unique <laughs> way in Ireland. Ask Bono, he'll tell you. Um, <laughs> the, the, the wording, because when the, the, when the Eighth Amendment was dropped, they had, to, they had to change the Constitution or what was written about. Because up until that, the Eighth Amendment was in the Constitution that the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn. Unborn child with equal right to the life of the mother. 
which was a wonderful wording, by the way. It was very, very good. It was just misinterpreted by a wicked judge, I think, or a number of wicked judges. Um, but then they had to they had to find new wording. So they had to describe. So even though they, they call it the abortion is never used, the word abortion is never used because they, they consider that to be too emotive. And also it, it brings other things of spontaneous miscarriage and so on, which strictly speaking are abortion. Mm. So they're very particular what they're talking about. So they call it the Termination of Pregnancy Health Act 2018. Uh, but they define it. So everything is very carefully defined. So they define, so so to, to, to ensure that everybody knows what we're talking about here. So by this Termination of Pregnancy Act, we're talking about a medical procedure. I, I object to the term medical. I think medical is something noble, but anyway, they, they call it a medical procedure with the intention of ending the life of a fetus. So it's all so that at least they acknowledge that this is this is the intended outcome. We're going to kill yeah. a, a human fetus. Now they go on to say a medical procedure includes medications and uh, surgical procedures. And they define then fetus could include embryos as well, because some abortions are going to be before, you know, in the embryonic stage before officially it's a fetus. It's a fetus around eight weeks when the organs are developing. Before that it's an embryo. Uh, so, but they're very careful that it's the important thing is that it's that everybody's there that this what they've now legalized up to twelve weeks without any conditions attached is a medical procedure with the intention of ending the life of the fetus uh, within the, the within the female reproductive tract. Um, so that's and that's very important that, that we make people aware. You know what is abortion? It's not just mm. ending a pregnancy. It's not just removing a, a clump of cells. It's not just removing a Class. It's, it's it's ending a life. It's the intention of ending the life of a fetus or an embryo. Yeah, and, and we need to keep reminding people of that. And I think that sort of constant messaging, if we're allowed to get it across, and we will, we find ways. We we always find innovative and uh, creative ways to to get these these important, you know, life saving uh, messages across. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose one thing I want to ask you. Um, Dermot, is what would you like to see more from from young people to help with getting that message across? Like, is there anything in particular that you know that you'd like to see from from the youth in terms of like you know the tools that they utilize or or things that they're involved in? Like, how do we how do we contribute to your work in in what we do every day? I, I am so impressed with abortion resistance. I, 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 I love you guys. I really do. Um, I love your courage. I love your intelligence. I love your articulate. Uh, you're, you're, you're great organizations. And so what you're doing, I'd say continue doing what you're doing. Um, you're using very honest. Uh, so everything you do is truthful. It's honest. Like there's no, there's no lies. Unlike the abortion industry, you have to hide behind lies and instilling fear. That that's a major and they instill fear at, at all sorts of levels. Fear to talk out, to say anything about it because you might get sh- someone might shout you down or criticize you. Fear of the woman, oh, you can't continue with this pregnancy because your studies will suffer or your family will suffer. Or so you, they have to instill this fear. So this, so it's based on lies and fear. So we're we have to base our movement on honesty and truth and uh, courage and um, promoting courage. Um, so continue what you're doing. I like uh, lots of the things you've done. You know, you're 
um, I know your group has taken sort of information from the NHS website, you know, development of the embryo. This is what, and nobody can say, oh, that, that's just a pro-life propaganda. No, no, no this is from yeah. the NHS website. <laughs> so, that, so that's very clever, but it's also very important. It's very honest. Uh, so to keep doing things like that. Um, I'd like you to promote abortion, like inform people. Did you know that, you know, most abortions nowadays are, are done by drug induced, but if a woman changes her mind, and a lot of them do, you know, we know that at least hundreds, if not thousands, change their mind in this country alone. Uh, and 4,000 babies have been born. So getting that message across to people, you know, to, to basically the, the truthful message is that this works, it's safe. Uh, bleeding will happen, but bleeding is not because of progesterone, it's because of mifepristone. And, you know, that's very common and sometimes very heavy. And progesterone, if anything, might help to alleviate or reduce the risk of bleeding. So not only will you give the, the baby a better chance of surviving, but you'll also be promoting the mother's health by giving progesterone as well for a short period of time. Yeah. Until the mifepristone is fully worn out. Getting those sort of messages across, I think, will be very, very helpful. Um, to be be courageous. So I would... It, I know it won't happen because you're you're a you're a shrewd group and you're courageous and but hopefully you, you won't become fearful you won't become afraid of of challenge because you will be there will be challenges against you all sorts of challenges there'll be physical challenges emotional challenges legal challenges will probably eventually find their way on your doorstep as it did with me and so so people will try to but that's that's a sign that you're having an effect so they don't. The abortion people have no interest in you if you're um, if you're if you're not having any effects. So they only become interest, interested if you're if you're a challenge or a threat to them, and then they will do everything they can to try and shout you down or close you down. So so continue to have your be committed and to be courageous and and honest. And also everything we do has to be done in a in a loving way. So we have to realize that um, people are being misled. They are, so the majority of women who have abortions, I'm sure, um, do so in desperation that it's not something that they would like. We often hear that it's a hard decision. Now, others will say, oh, it was a very easy decision in my case, but we, we have to be sensitive. We can't, um, can't criticise individuals. Even people from the other side, we can't criticise them as individuals because there is always hope that they will be converted. And there's many, many examples the one that I'm particularly keen on talking about is a, it's a doctor called Tony Levitino, Anthony Levitino. Yeah. You may have seen his videos. He's he was an abortionist, right? He was. He did 1,200 second-term yeah. abortions, uh, not to mention the first-term abortions, and that was only in his in his private work. He said in his training he'd done hundreds more when he had to learn the procedures. But he then he, he adopted a little girl, and she got tragically killed, and then he was obviously very distraught about that. And then just one day shortly after her death, when he was doing a... Because you have to, you have to put the pieces together after you, when you do the second trimester abortion. You, you're doing dismemberment. You have to make sure there's four arms and four, or two arms and two legs, and all the pieces of the skull. And he was putting it together, and he, he saw his, the image of his own child in that child that he had just en ended the life of, and that made him think. So he never done another second trimester abortion after that. He continued doing first trimester abortions for a little while, but then he gave up completely, and now yeah. he's very much alive. And there's Abby Johnson and there was Noreen Johnson who passed away last year. There's lots of examples. John Brukalski is another one who's written a, a recent book on the subject. It's called Two Lives. I mean, again, he'd done not as many as, as Anthony Levitino, but he'd done several hundred abortions and right. until he realised this was this was terrible. So he's written a book about, you know, there are two lives and he's a gynecologist who looks after 
and mothers and children and, and their babies. Um, so there's lots of examples of people. So there's always that hope that people can change. So even the people who brought the cases against me, I pray for them all the time that that, that some sort of conversion of heart and mind will, will occur. Um, I, don't, I don't hold any grudges against them. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not going to just lie down and let people sort of silence us or, or stop us doing from what we know to be right. So I often say that and anytime I'm giving a talk, I say never, never tire of doing what's right. Just keep keep going. If you know it's the right thing to do, you got to keep doing it. So abortion resistance, you know what's right. So keep keep up your, your good work. And if, you know, if I can help you in any way, I know you want old old people like me not not, not um, hampering your style, uh, which is and that's very important. It's uh, I, was, I speak to my wife Mary about about you on a right because she follows your activities as well and she said it's wonderful to see a youth group that doesn't allow old people get involved uh, because they would take over and so you, you have to be you've got to be in control my only, only hope is that when you're a little bit older that there'll be enough younger people coming behind you that you'll then step aside and i hope uh, so i hope so that's 15, 20 years down the road of course <laughs> yeah yeah well that's we've got to keep it a, we've got to keep it a youth movement um, yeah i think i do think it's important but um, Dr. Kearney, it's always, it's, I mean, people like yourself, it's always an absolute inspiration for us, like as young people to, you know, follow in the footsteps and, and be inspired by people like yourself who are doing such incredible work. And it's, I mean, what we're doing in comparison to the work that you're doing, it honestly is, it feels minuscule. And so that's why it's, it's just so it's such an honor to be able to even sit here and have this discussion with you. And the fact that you've taken the time out of your day to, to provide all this insight and on your experience and and your thoughts and your work for the audience that's listening just now, it's, it's honestly, I can't thank you enough. So, so yeah, on behalf of the whole abortion resistance team, thank you so much for not only your work, but for coming on here and, and having this conversation. It really does mean the world. You're very welcome. It's it's an honour for me to, to be involved with with to, to know you and to know your your gorgeous wife Eden. Um, the, the first time I saw Eden, it was uh, it was on a Twitter uh, post where she was having a debate. It was a Channel Four little. Five, five oh, was that the first time that you'd seen her? The first time I, I didn't know who she was. I, I presumed she was American on before I heard her voice. Yeah, and yeah. I wonder yeah. what this is. And then I, I, I said. Who is? I was in the car. I was watching it, and I, my wife was driving, and I was watching this on the. I said, you got you got to see this when we stop. I'll show it to you. And I said, I got to find out who this girl is. She was she just blew me away. She was just so good, so intelligent, so uh, hit all the right points, but was so articulate and and she's she's gorgeous looking as well. She's very attractive, absolutely. which is and added also. I'm sure you agree with that too. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, absolutely. So I was so <laughs> I said I got to meet this, and I was so thrilled when I I was able to attend the launch of of abortion resistance back in March last uh, this year. This I was year, so yeah. thrilled to get to meet uh, Eden and the team because she was, she was the only one I knew. Oh, actually, I knew Natalia as well. Oh, of course, of I'd course. Met, yeah. I'd met Natalia before. I, Natalia's gorgeous. I love Natalia. Um, so it was such a thrill for, for me to get you all to, to meet you all in, in in person at that point. And I've tried to keep in contact with you ever since. I follow what you're doing. So it is. Oh, it's I a real likewise. honor for me to to be part of a, a small part in the background of of, of this great work you're doing. 
Absolutely. Oh, damn it. Thank you so much. You've no idea how much that means. And and yeah, we'll we'll definitely need to stay in touch and we need to do one of these again this time next year to see like what what the updates have been, what you know, what things have happened during 2023. Because I'm genuinely excited for for next year to see what's going to happen. Um so yeah, we'll definitely need to get a date in the diary um again for, for another episode with you and make this a regular thing. Um, because I mean, yeah, like I said, the insights that you provide is just absolutely amazing and you're an inspiration to us all. Um, so yeah, once again, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on this podcast and to the audience, thank you so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure to be able to provide these episodes for you all. Um, if you haven't done so already, um, please do give us a follow on all social media platforms where, where we are, we're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook at Abortion Resist. Uh, please let us know your thoughts. And if you have any requ- requests or suggestions for future podcast uh, ideas or guests, please get in touch with us through our website, abortionresistance.org.uk. And lastly, Dermot, where can our audience find you on social media? Obviously, you said you've got Twitter. Um, where, where can they find you on Twitter? And if you've got any other social media platforms, where can they find you there? I'm really only on Twitter. I, I, I don't understand the other, and I don't have enough time to, to, to be involved in other things. My, my wife's yeah. on Instagram, but she doesn't uh, post very much. She follows people <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't follow Instagram. I don't, I, I am apparently on Facebook, but I've never put anything on it because I keep getting these things. You have new friends or suggestions and things for them. I don't, yeah. I don't put anything on Facebook. So it's no just problem. on Twitter. So I think it's Dermot Carney 3, I think is what they have me down as. Fantastic. Dermot Carney 3. Um, Good stuff. Demi Kennedy, three, works, everyone. Anybody can follow me. And I usually, if it's someone who's pro-life or or pro-Bob Dylan or someone, I'll follow pro them. Pro-Bob Dylan? <laughs> well, I do a lot of, I do a lot of um, little tweets on music posts and stuff like that. Oh, well, that's good. Not only Bob Dylan, but a lot of yeah. metal and country. Any, anything that comes up, I, I, I have my little say about music. It, was, it used to be a passion, maybe more so in the past when I was growing up. So it's one of those things that you care Brilliant. about passionately. Brilliant. So I, kept it kept it alive yeah that's always good to do so maybe that can be the idea for our for our next episode is just exchange exchange uh music playlists and our favorite albums over the years i think that's, oh, that's yeah. probably yeah that's probably you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah enough enough of this pro-life nonsense yeah. <laughs> that'd be that'd be good so yeah Dermot kearney three then for for everyone listening please do for follow Dr. Um, Dermot Kearney um, and keep up with what he's doing, which is amazing work. Um, And yeah, we both wish you all a very Merry Christmas and New Year and keep resisting and we we will see you all soon. Thanks again, Dermot. Thank you very much, Thomas.